Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. So 27 years ago, I was on my way to preach at a church in Tucson, Arizona. I was flying there and uh, I was going to speak about, I was representing uh, a missions agency at the time and doing development for them, raising support for the training of pastors in Latin America. It was a great thing. But uh, as I was flying over there, I was reading devotionally out of Second Chronicles, and I got to chapters 33 and 34, and I had never really known much about Josiah, the character, the king of Judah, and I just fell in love with his character. And I remember being in that pulpit that Sunday night and telling the people, you know, we were expecting number three. I, uh, I told them, I remember the, the instant, like it was yesterday, that if the Lord gives us a boy, I haven't passed it by his mother yet, I said, but um, I'd like to name him Josiah. And Val fell in love with the story, fell in love with the character, and God gave us a Josiah, not only by name, but by way of character and heart as well. So very, very grateful for, for this character and for my own son. We're going to be dealing just a little bit with the life and times of Josiah, king of Judah. You can tell, I, I've been collecting notes on this guy, writing notes for 27 years. And in order to get up here today, there was a lot of paper on my editing room floor. A lot. And uh, so we're just going to really skip off the, the top of Second Chronicles 34. If you want to turn there and just keep your thumb there, that's be a good thing to do. Let me just give you the chapters in which Josiah appears in the Old Testament so that you can study it on your own, okay? I really would encourage you to do that. There are many chapters really that deal with, how many of you are familiar with Josiah? Let me ask that. Okay, just, just a few. Um, fascinating character. And let me give you the chapters where he appears in the Old Testament, not chronologically, but according to how they appear in the Old Testament. You have 1 Kings 13. You're going to want to write these down and do your devotionals this week on this. I guarantee you, you will not be disappointed. 1 Kings 13, 13, that's a wonderful account of how Josiah is set up to be really a fulfillment of a prophecy some 300 years later. And then there's 2 Kings 21 through 23. Uh, you have Second Chronicles 33 through 35, which is a broader context of our study today. And you have them peppered as a reference point throughout the book of Jeremiah. And the reason for that is, is that Jeremiah and Josiah were buddies put together by the Lord in ministry to reach a nation for God when they had fallen very, very far off the mark. So Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, would be good collateral reading and there's lots of things, many things, many lessons that we can learn from this man's life. But his life is really a stage, primarily, guys, to show the amazing power of God's Word. And today we're going to visit two principles that arise out of these many texts. And they are this. First of all, we're going to look at the irrepressibility of the Word of God. and say, what do you mean by that? That the Word of God is irrepressible, I mean that it cannot be muzzled. You can try to destroy it, you can ignore it, you can shame it, you know, shout it down, you can put it in the closet, forget about it, but the Word of God will permeate 
the culture, permeate the church, permeate God's people, and it will speak to people, and it will speak, the second point, with transforming power. We're going to also look at the transforming power of the Word. But in order to set up that first point, the irrepressibility of the Word of God, let me just um, do a little bit of historical reference so that you know where this story comes from. And we're picking up the story of Judah in 2 Chronicles 34. We're picking it up at a very low point. The kingdom, remember after Solomon, what happened? It split, right? And the ten northern tribes became the commonwealth of Israel. And the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, became just the southern country of, of Judah. And uh, the northern tribes were completely faithless. They were carted off to uh, captivity by the Assyrians in 722 BC. They didn't have one good king among them. And the tribe of, the tribe of Benjamin and Judah, the southern kingdom, remained somewhat faithful to the Lord, but they had their fair share of awful, awful kings, as we'll see a little bit later. So they, the, the northern part of Israel, the ten northern tribes, had been carted off, and the southern kingdom, for those 82 years until Josiah came to the throne, had been on a ruinous road to destruction. And during this time, which is really amazing, God continually reached out to the people of Judah, mitigating his judgment, sending them the prophets, preaching, teaching them, reaching out to them, wanting to shower them with his loving kindness and mercy. And yet the people during this whole time rejected the, the great compassionate overtures of their God. And they, they spurned God aside. And so they slid further and further into sin until reaping the whirlwind that they had sown, they were plummeting into political chaos, moral collapse, and of course, certain judgment because the Babylonians were waiting in the wings to, take, to be used by God as God's instrument of judgment and discipline. And the godly people in Judah at this time were very few in number. They were in the decided minority. They had no voice they had no rights. They had no influence. And things are very dim. It was a hopeless time in Judah. And it was a time of great political, governmental angst and turmoil. Great tumult. You had Ammon, who was the father of Josiah, who was murdered in a failed coup d'etat. And then instead of the usurpers taking control of Judah and at least providing some measure of stability, they were captured rounded up and executed. And so you had this nation at, at a very low moral ebb with a great void of leadership. So there was no one to lead. The country's falling apart morally, spiritually, economically, militarily, everything. And the one who rises up to fill the void of leadership is none other than an eight-year-old boy. Josiah. That's hardly the commanding presence, right, that you would want in a time of crisis. You know, when you're in crisis politically, economically, militarily, when your nation is falling apart, you want a Winston Churchill. You want, uh, you know, an Abraham Lincoln or a George Washington. You want somebody who knows who they are, knows what the country needs, and, and leads forward with strength, right? 
And yet what Judah had was a little boy to be their king in the midst of all this godlessness and and chaos. And if that little boy were true to his pedigree, he would live down, certainly live down to the standard set by his, his fathers and the former kings. It was a time where Judah was literally a smoking rubble of chaos. And yet during this time, God reaches out to Judah and in his mercy begins to prepare his people for a great revival. A great revival. And you can read about that revival in 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. And so God turns his gracious favor towards his people and he begins to raise up a little boy and to prepare the heart of that little boy to seek the God of his fathers and to lead his wayward people to the place of blessing, the place of stability once again. And so let me just begin with the text in Second Chronicles 34. We're going to see in these verses as we go along the irrepressibility of the word of God. Second Chronicles 34, 1. It reads like this. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Now, stop right there, because verses 2 and 3 are an absolutely mind-boggling truth when you consider the historical context that we just looked at. Look at verse 2. Well, first of all, let, let me just say this. Before Josiah, especially as you read about the, the northern kingdom, the northern kings, what does it say at the introduction of every king virtually? And he did what? Evil in the sight of the Lord, according to Manasseh or whomever. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. All of the kings in the northern kingdom began that, that way. Most of the kings in the southern kingdom began that way too. So you're reading it and it just it begins to, to weigh down on you if you read it. If you're reading through the historical books of the Old Testament. And you hear, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Turn the page. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Look at verse 2 of Second Chronicles 34. And he, Josiah, did what? Right in the sight of the Lord. And walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now when you stop and consider these verses, these verses are even more amazing than they appear just on the surface. Because you see, guys, at this point in the history of Judah, the time when Josiah ascended the throne, and for 18 long years afterwards, two decades afterwards, King Josiah did not have a copy of the Torah. He did not have a copy of the chief revelation to the Jews on how they were to live their personal lives on how they were to live with their brothers, their, their, their brethren, the, the, the people of Israel, and how they were to live their lives in this world. The scripture was completely gone. Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, had in all likelihood just torn away, destroyed, and burned every copy of the Torah that he could find. He was a wicked man that set the standard for evil. That was Josiah's grandfather. He despised the word of God. And he tore it from the life of God's people. And the, the devastation that he engineered by doing this was so great that, listen to me, not even the priests or the scribes, the scholars of the law, had a copy of the law. 
Not the king, not the priest, not the scribes. It's just incredible. When you, guys, when you stop to consider that we're talking about the Jews here, this is ridiculous. Simply amazing, or I should say appalling. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, after he condemns his fellow Jews in chapter 2 for violating the law, asks the obvious question. He says, verse 1, chapter 3, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Since all Jews stand, stand condemned just like the rest of humanity, what's the advantage of being a Jew? And Paul answers that emphatically in verse 2. He says this, Great in every respect. What do you mean, Paul? He says that, first of all, in other words, at the very top of the list, the greatest blessing of being a Jew is this, quote, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What is that? The scriptures, the word of God. Psalm 147 says this in verses 19 and 20. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. Any nation. Out of all the peoples of the earth, the Jews were the only ones entrusted with the scripture. The Bible. In other words, one of the chief blessings of belonging to the covenant people to the covenant nation was the fact that they were given the Bible, which shows us the high standing of the church, right? We were given the balance of the word of God ourselves. But in the Old Testament, before the new covenant, the only people to receive the word were the Israelis, the Jews. This is so amazing. I mean, it was their crown jewel. It was their glory. And yet here we have the king of Judah, who is supposed to be, by the way, a biblical scholar, a Torah scholar. Do you know that? Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20, said that the king, God said, you're going to reject me as king one day, and I am going to give you a king. And when that king comes, in order for him to be just and right, he's going to write out a copy of the law by his own hand under the tutelage and observation of the priests. Why? So they could point out errors, yes, but so that the king could understand what the word meant and how it applied to him in the kingdom. And God said he is to take that law and carry it with him all the day. And he is to read from it every day so that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren. He was to be a scholar so that he would be humbled by the truth of God. And here you have the king of Judah. And you have the priest and his scribes and his teachers and his scholars. And between the whole lot of them, not one copy of the book of the law. Appalling. The word of God had been physically destroyed and removed from Judah. And yet we read 2 Chronicles 34, 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, 16 years old, barely old enough probably to drive his own chariot. (laughs) It's a little joke there. A little levity. While he was still a youth, 16 years old, guys, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, when he was 20, 
He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the places of pagan worship, the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images. I mean, he purged the nation. What a guy. And here's a young man, guys, who had so much stacked against him, right? So much. I mean, beginning with the rampant paganism that had absolutely gripped his nation, everybody was a pagan. A spiritual pagan. He was so isolated ideologically, theologically, and yet he had a heart for God and he pursued God passionately regardless of how that made him look to his culture. It didn't matter. And guys, if I can just take a minute and, and address the young people. Young people, you don't have to wait until you're an adult to seek God earnestly and to set the pattern for everybody. You don't have to be a college graduate or to be married and have children or have a career to set the trend to seek God. You can be like Josiah. The nation of Judah as a whole had abandoned the God of Israel and they were in an advanced state of spiritual, moral, political disintegration. And God begins to work in the heart of a young boy who becomes a young man who says, I will follow God and restore a people. God is a saving God. He's in the business of redeeming things that are lost, of restoring that which is destroyed. And he works through humble, willing servants regardless of age or stage in life. Some four decades after Josiah's ascension to the throne, when the nation of Judah had fallen again, they were carted off to Babylon. Four young Jewish men were carted off, ripped away from their families, and they were between 14 and 17 years old. Their names, you probably recognize them, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Nice Jewish names back there, by the way. Just saying, Darnell and Vanessa, just saying. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means God has been my, has been gracious to me. Isn't that beautiful? Mishael is who is like God. Azariah means the Lord has helped me. Then there's always Marcella, which I don't know what that means. <laughs> but these four young men, guys, stood in the face of the darkest, most powerful empire in the entire world at that time, and they said, we will serve God rather than, than buckle under the pressure and, and, and compromise ourselves. In fact, we will serve God even if it costs us our very lives. Daniel was about 15 years old when he did that. 600 years after Daniel, God sent his messenger Gabriel to a Jewish virgin, a 14 to 15 year old young lady, a peasant girl with a commissioning. And God told this young lady, I want you to bear the Son of God. I want you to bear the Messiah of Israel. I want you to bear the Savior of the world. And this will happen without the agency of a human father. God's spirit will overshadow you and the power of God will create in you a holy child. I mean, who would believe her, really? 
the, the Messiah in a peasant girl's womb, pregnant while a virgin, her condition brought about by the power of God? Yeah, right, sure. That's quite a lot to bear for any woman, isn't it? Let alone a 14 to 15-year-old young lady. But she believed God. As Gabriel said, with God, nothing is impossible. Or all things are possible with God, rather, positively. And if you stop and read her hymn of praise in Luke chapter 1, verses, uh, let me see, it's 46 through 55. Yes. This hymn of praise by Mary oozes, bleeds, biblene out of every pore, out of every verse. She knew the God of Israel revealed to her in the scriptures. And back to the, the idea of, of Josiah here, or Josiah's uh, um, account. What's most amazing about Josiah is that he had a heart, a passionate heart for God, but he didn't have the word of God yet. And yet we read again in verse 3, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father. David, that's incredible. How did this happen? And some of you less familiar with the story will say, well, he must have had a great role model or great parents. Mm, let me tell you something. Manasseh and Ammon, Ammon, his father, Manasseh, his grandfather, would make King, Kim Jong-un look dateable. These guys were bad men. Josiah's grandfather caused Judah to sin so egregiously, so deeply, that once Josiah died, all his reforms died with him because the people slid right back into their depravity. Manasseh was a multiple idolater. He was a mass murderer with the blood of thousands on his hands. He murdered Isaiah the prophet, the one voice of biblical reason in Judah, and he even sacrificed, sacrificed, burned alive some of his own babies in the flames dedicated to Molech, a pagan deity, taking his babies and throwing them into the fire alive. So horrible was the memory of this place that was just outside the walls of Jerusalem where people burned their rubbish. So there was always the stench of smoke and burning debris and the smell of burning flesh and the, the scream of innocence, that that place, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, or Ben-Hinnom, contracted is Gehinnom, which the Greeks borrowed to speak of hell, Gehenna. So the, the king of Judah, Judah, who was supposed to be the spiritual leader of God's people, was a byword for hell. And even though Manasseh, and you can read about that in 2 Kings, Manasseh, by the grace of God, um, I even preached on him, I believe, in, in, in the background of Isaiah 55. But um, even though by the grace of God he repented at the end of his days, he was not able to rescue his son from perdition, Ammon. In fact, Ammon was the carbon copy of his father's worst sinful past. And the last four words we have to describe his reign are these, Second Chronicles 33:23. But Ammon multiplied guilt. He was an exponential sinner. That, guys, was Josiah's daddy, his father. And so Josiah's boyhood was filled with the practice of the occult, with the worship of the stars, of demons, of Molech. 
It was filled with immorality, greed, oppression, injustice, and violence, and bloodshed of genocidal proportions. And then to kind of put a bloody exclamation mark on his first eight years, it's, it's interesting how the, the coup d'etat, the usurpers to the throne, killed his father. They didn't whisk him away to a nefarious place, kill him and dispose of the body in secret and just step into that void of power. What did they do? They killed Ammon and left him for dead in his house for his family to find. And we don't know if Josiah saw the lifeless body of his father, but we know that this boy was raised around unspeakable idolatry and bloodshed. You talk about a dysfunctional family, right? Unspeakable bloodshed. And you add to this the reality that they didn't have a Torah to break the cycle. It just, it makes Second Chronicles 34, 1 through 3 read like a spiritual miracle, and it is. You know why? Because that's God's power, the irrepressible power of the Word of God. What do I mean? You know what? Even though he tried, Manasseh tried to destroy everything related to the law, he couldn't stop the oral tradition, right? The retelling of the stories. I mean, that's what makes Jews get together and eat. It's like we retell the stories of, of the Exodus. They, they retell the stories of, of creation and of all the Old Testament stories. Those were told to Josiah. He also had no doubt some fragments of the Psalms, the Psalms of David, perhaps Korah, the sons of Korah. He also had the preaching of Zephaniah and Jeremiah and the disciples of Isaiah who carried on the oral tradition of his teachings. And perhaps he had a righteous mother, we don't know. All we have is her name. 2 Kings 22.1, her name was Jedida in Hebrew, Yedida, and it means beloved. And it's the feminized version of Jedidiah, which is the name that Nathan the prophet gave to Solomon, which means beloved of the Lord. And he says he did that for the Lord's sake. Maybe she was beloved of the Lord as well, and she passed on God's truth to this little boy. But regardless, even though the collection of books known as the Old Testament had been absent, especially the Torah from the kingdom of Josiah, even though the scriptures had been physically destroyed and biblical literacy was probably at an all-time low, God's word was not muzzled. It filtered past time and persecution to leave its imprint on the conscience of a nation and especially on the heart of this young king. What Manasseh and the wicked did not realize is you can't destroy the word of God. Right? Because the Word of God is more than just paper, pulp, glue, and leather, right? It is the mind of God expressed in words. It's an idea. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. You can count on it. It'll happen. In fact, Peter gives us a description. He says, but the day of the Lord, that final day, will come like a thief in which the heaven will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. The, Jesus holds all things together, right? Colossians 1.17. One day he's going to remove his restraining influence, and everything's going to fly apart at the speed of light, that which is wicked and, and worthy of destruction. It'll be burned up. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what? 
My words will not pass away. He said it's easier for one jot or tittle of the law to fail than for the whole earth to be burned up. The jot and tittle is just a vowel pointing. It's not even a whole letter. It's just a little extension that makes the letter distinguishable from another one that looks exactly like it. God's word is indestructible. His truth is eternal, will not be destroyed, and it won't be altered by the schemes of man either. The word of God is irrepressible. It is also abounding in power to transform. I want to move forward if I can because we're, we're um, moving fast on time, but I want to kind of pick up the idea of where we're at here from Second Chronicles 34, 8 through 33. Okay, At this point, Josiah is in the midst of his dramatic reforms. He still doesn't have the law. And he's beginning with the cleansing and the restoration of the temple and extending the, you know, the purging of idolatry among the remnant of the ten northern tribes and especially among Judah and Benjamin. And the king, like I said, still doesn't have a copy of the law, but he knows enough to know, to realize, that idolatry has to be expunged, right? And he knows enough to know that the temple has to be restored. And that's going to create a, that creates a problem because that's going to take a lot of money. The temple used gold and, and precious metals and, and many gems and jewels and special stones that were rare and very expensive. And they have no money. Manasseh and Ammon had basically thrown away the wealth of the people. And so the king, Josiah, gets together a group of people led by his chief right-hand man, a scribe by the name of Shaphan, and he sends them throughout the territories of Israel and also along Judah and Benjamin to collect an offering from the people to restore the temple. And so they go all over the, t- the northern territories and Judah and Benjamin, and the people put together a great gift, a sacrificial gift offering for the restoration of the temple. And they bring this money and they give it to Hilkiah, the high priest, who was kind of like the treasurer of this project. And Hilkiah takes the money and he puts it in the temple, and as needs arise, he allocates some money to the project, right? So they're doing all this work of the temple, cleaning it up, restoring it, making it as beautiful as in the days of Solomon. And while they're cleaning things up, as they're poking around different sections of the temple, Hilkiah the priest makes a remarkable discovery. And you know where this is going, right? They're in the midst of the clutter. Somehow, we don't know how, where, by what means. It was probably through the means of a faithful priest or scribe. They find a copy of, of the Torah. And it's complete. Not fragments, not pieces, but it's complete. And that was probably the progenitor of the copies of the Torah throughout the ancient world. And so they find this book. Look at verses 14 and 15 of Second Chronicles 34. And when they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest, who's also the high priest, found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Now you can tell this is a great economy of words, right? Because it reads rather plainly, but can you imagine the joy? You're digging around, 
And all of a sudden, from one moment to the next, the years, the decade of, decades of silence are gone. The word of God is found. And Shaphan rushes to the king to give him a progress report of how the temple is going, but to tell him a special surprise. Your majesty, Hilkiah found a little something. <laughs> he found a little something. He found something. You know what it is? Go ahead, guess. What? <laughs> he found the book of the words of God through Moses. And put yourself in Josiah's shoes. How would you even process that? It's like, who, what, what do you mean? He, here's a man who could say with the sons of Korah in Psalms 42, verses 1 and 2, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. Oh, my soul thirsts for God, he says, for the living God. When will I come and appear before God? And he knows that the answer to that question, the, the only thing that will satiate his hunger and thirst for God is the law of God. He desired to know God in truth, to fellowship with God in truth, to serve him in truth, to worship him in truth. But all he has to go on is fragmented information, oral tradition, fragments of the Psalms, just pieces of the... Imagine yourself in that situation. Maybe you only have the middle part of Genesis. And then you have a Psalm or two, and maybe a, a, a fragment of the Proverbs. Then you've got half the book of Matthew. Whatever half it is, it's pieces of it. And you only got to have a couple of chapters in Revelation. I mean, that is all precious, but it's incomplete information. And this information, as incomplete as it is, has been the treasure of his heart, and it's been framing his heart since he was a boy. And even though his heart is, is headed in the right direction, he doesn't know if he's going about God's business in exactly the way God prescribed it. He was very detailed, wasn't he? He doesn't know the extent of his people's sin. He doesn't know the extent of his own sin and what are the consequences for these sins. And he definitely does not know God the way he desires to know God. And that knowledge comes through the word of God because that's where God reveals himself most perfectly. You can tell qualities of God, characteristics of God by looking at nature, right? Especially as a believer. But he's powerful and he's gracious and he's a provider and he nurtures us. Many wonderful things. But where do you see that Jesus saves? You see it in the word of God. He knows that's where his knowledge of God will be satiated. And one day Shaphan ends up at his feet and he says, we have got it. We have got it. And I can just imagine this scribe because a scribe is a scholar an expert in Old Testament law. And this guy was exposed to, we don't know how old Shaphan is, but at some point he had exposure to the law and then it was ripped away from his life. And he finally says, now I've got something to study. And he brings it to the king. He must have been excited. Perhaps a little fearful as he began to tremble and unfold it. And then he begins to read the words before the king. Verse 18, moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, say, saying, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book, 
And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. He called out. He summoned. He engaged. He was reading to engage the king. He was reading with great emotion and he read at length. That's the idea here. And Josiah is eating it up. He said, keep it coming. Keep it coming. It hurts, but keep it coming. Just simply amazing. So what was the response of the king, of King Josiah? He's been waiting for this day all his life, it seems. What was the response of the king to the words of the Lord? Look at verse 19. When the king heard the words of the law, he what? He tore his clothes. That's an ancient way of of expressing deep, deep mourning, even despair. We heard Eric preach on the life of Job a few weeks ago. Job got all that bad news. You've lost everything, but he didn't tear his robes until he heard all his children were dead. Deep, deep mourning. This is not some ritual or some show that he's putting on. The king is devastated. He's in despair. He had dreamed, as I said, all his life for this. And now the law is read before him and all he can do is weep and tear his clothes because he's in deep mourning and deep conviction of sin. Josiah would have agreed with Paul in Romans 3.20 for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now he could see how far he and his people had fallen when he looked at the light of God's word. And it was painful. And guys, true biblical belief whether you were an Old Testament Jew or whether you're a Christian in the New Covenant here, true biblical Christianity, if I can use those terms, is sometimes very painful. Because as we see who God is, we see who we are. I like what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want religion to make you feel really comfortable, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, he said, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Because sometimes the truth hurts, doesn't it? Josiah approached the word humbly, not with an agenda, a preset agenda, not selectively, but with an open, humble heart ready for God to teach him what he needed to learn. And brothers and sisters, we have to guard against that. Coming to the word of God um, for an emotional booster shot. How many of you have done that? You know, you feel real bad starting the week. It's like, I I need to feel good. Uh, Go to the Psalms. No, ooh, that one talks about responsibility. Uh, Let me go, I'll read the story of Ruth again. Or, you know, it's all the word of God, but listen, Listen to it. Open your heart to it. The word of God is effective to bring about God's design in your life and my life. Expose your soul to it. Let it change you. Don't resist it. Don't superimpose your interpretation on the text. Let it speak plainly. The author of Hebrews and Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, right? And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
And verse 13 basically says that God's word lays us bare before God. That's okay. Let the light of God's word shine its light and burn away the dross. Because in that, there is healing. True healing. Guys, this is why I preach. This is why I have the ministry that we have. And this is why this church is so committed to teaching you the Bible. Every man that steps up here has done due diligence. That's why Eric works so hard. You know, the guy's a horse of it. He's got a full-time job. And he works so hard to bring you the word, to bring me the word. Why? Because he knows that's what will change us. That's what will transform our lives. God's word deeply changes us, and it deeply changes Josiah. Josiah thought, okay, I'm done for. He sent Shaphan to Huldah the prophetess, and Huldah the prophetess said, God says this, I will bring calamity on Jerusalem and on, on Judah, but I'm going to spare you, Josiah. Under you, you will experience great revival with his people. And he did. He led Judah to repentance. They burned all the high places of, of worship. They burned their idols. They turned to God with a whole heart. And it culminated with a celebration of a feast, of the Passover feast, like no other, greater than anything celebrated in the days of Solomon. And the people were led back to revival. It was a revival sparked by the law of God through a man of God to the people of God, and it was beautiful. But only because Josiah exposed himself to the truth that burned away the dross. Let me just close this by giving you God's opinion of this man. I'm kind of condensing things here, but this is so amazing to me. And you need to turn there. I'll read it to you. 2 Kings 23. It's actually verses 24 and 25. But let me just read you 25. It says this. Now before him, before Josiah, before any other king, in other words, all the preceding kings, now before him, and that would include whom? David. So God says, before him, including David, listen to this, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. God said, there is no one like Josiah. You probably, some of you haven't even, hadn't even heard of him. The greatest king of all Israel and Judah. What made him the man he was? For that we go back to verse 3 of Second Chronicles 34. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. And the secret is in to seek the God of his father David. The word to seek, darash in Hebrew, means to inquire diligently, to search for carefully, to pursue. And the core word of darash, I love this. This says, says it all to me. You know what the core word of Darash means to seek? It means to tread frequently. In other words, Josiah, through the word, would come to seek God day after day after day after day after day after day after day. That was his well-worn path. If you looked, you took an aerial shot of his life, you could say, oh, see, there he goes. He goes to God every time. 
all the time, every day, multiple times a day. May be so for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the example of this amazing man who had such a heart for you that he sought you diligently with minimal truth at first and then with all his heart through your law like no other king in the history of your people. Lord, may we seek you diligently. May that be said of us. That is our well-worn path. We go to you through the word, and we thank you for that word, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.